All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. That is Mark 10, 32 through 34. Uh, obviously, we are continuing our study of Mark's Gospel. And tonight, we come to the third prediction or prophecy of our Lord Jesus concerning his own death and resurrection. Um, now, just to be honest, the text before us uh, this evening is a simple one. As I just said, our Lord predicts his suffering, death, and resurrection. Now, Jesus has already predicted this twice to his disciples, and we've already looked at both of those predictions so far in this gospel. The first one was in chapter 8, verse 31, and this one, or the second one is chapter 9, verse 31. Okay, so 831 and 931, those are the first two predictions. And it's a fair thing to say that all three predictions are substantially the same each time. Now, there's varying levels of information given. The one we're going to look at this evening gives us the most detail about Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection. Uh, so there's varying levels of information given, but the main themes of Jesus being rejected, handed over to sinners, killed, and raised from the dead are present in each one of his predictions. Now, what I'm getting at is that there is nothing new to us in this text. We, we've, we've heard these things before. And as Christians, we've heard, sang, prayed, and confessed the truths of this text over and over and over again since we first believed. But God inspired Matthew, Mark, and Luke to each record all three of Jesus' prophecies concerning his death and resurrection. And so we infer from this with good reason that our God expects us to hear all three of them and meditate upon them each time. Right? Really, the themes of Jesus' death and resurrection are repeated over and over and over again throughout the entirety of Scripture. They are two of the great themes of the Bible, Christ himself being the great theme of Scripture. And so I pray that God would help us to never grow tired, that we would never grow tired of hearing about the death and resurrection of our Lord because it is the centerpiece of our faith. It is the crux of all human history. It is our salvation. So may our God, by his spirit, help us to hear the words of Jesus in this text with fresh ears so that we may leave here simply amazed at him and his great love for us displayed in his suffering, death, and resurrection. Now, with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our great God, we come to you now asking that you would bless the ministry of your word. We believe that your word will not return void to you, but that it will always accomplish what you've purposed for it. So we ask now, in light of that, that you would help us to gladly and humbly receive your word. 
Grant us sharp minds to understand and open hearts to believe what you have revealed to us in the word. Give us a sight of your great love and plan to save sinners through Jesus Christ. Teach us now and sanctify us through your word. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. We're just going to go ahead and dive into the text this evening, beginning with verse 32. I'll read it again. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Let's stop there. Jesus was walking ahead of them. Jesus and his disciples, both the twelve and a larger group of followers, I believe, are on the road and heading to Jerusalem. And Mark here records for us a detail that no other gospel records. Right? And usually whenever you see that, whenever there's parallel accounts and one of them says something that the other ones don't, you want to probably focus on that because it's there for a reason. Mark records a detail for us that no other gospel does, and I'm convinced that it has to be an eyewitness detail from Peter, the apostle Peter, to Mark. You'll remember, or you'll pretend, uh, the very first sermon I preached uh, in this series three years ago, uh, Mark's gospel is essentially Peter's retelling of the life and ministry of Jesus, right? So, but there's a detail, and it's an eyewitness detail. I believe it's something that stuck out to the apostle Peter whenever he was telling Mark what he had seen from Christ. And the detail is this. Jesus was walking ahead of them. There's your detail. Jesus is walking ahead of them. That is, Jesus is further down the road than his disciples, literally. He's out walking them. They were forced to keep up with them, with him. Right? Jesus was walking with purpose as he's going on the road to Jerusalem. He wasn't stopping to take in the scenery. He wasn't dragging his feet. He was determined to get there. And this may not seem like a big deal to you at first, but as I said earlier, I think Mark intends us to see something about our Lord here. This is important. Jesus is leading the way to Jerusalem. Remember that our Lord has been prophesying about his coming death. And though the disciples haven't been told this explicitly yet, they'll learn of it in our text today, though they haven't heard this explicitly, we know that Jesus is going to be killed in Jerusalem. And he knew that too. Again, he's about to tell them in our text. He knows. And he's been telling the disciples what's going to happen to him in general. Again, and he knows it's going to happen in Jerusalem. But even with that knowledge, here is our Lord walking ahead of the group leading the way to Jerusalem, knowing full well what awaits for him there. He knows that it is there that he will become the sacrifice for sin, that he who knew no sin would become sin for us. He knows that pain, suffering, and death are waiting for him in the holy city. He knows that a cross awaits him, that the most shameful death imaginable awaits him, He knows the unmitigated, white-hot wrath of God awaits him at that cross in Jerusalem. Remember that. He knows. He knew what was going to happen. But nevertheless, he pushes ahead. Not to speak glibly here, but he leads the disciples in his own death march. He leads them to it. But why? Because he is the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. Does that sound familiar to you, the servant of the Lord? That's the the person that Isaiah prophesied about throughout his book in, in what we call the servant songs, the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. And it's in one of those servant songs that we learn something about our Lord Jesus. 
Actually, we learned something about him in all of them, but for our purposes this evening, in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7, we read that the servant of the Lord, Jesus, says this, I have set my face like a flint. I've set my face like a flint. And in the context here, in Isaiah, that means that the servant of the Lord set his face like a flint, knowing suffering lays ahead of him. He talks about having his beard ripped out, about having his back laid open in that chapter of Isaiah 50. And he says, and yet I set my face like a flint. The servant of the Lord was set in stone. Flint's a stone. He's set in stone to do the will of God. Nothing was going to sway him. Nothing would change his mind. Nothing could keep him from doing the work that his father had sent him to do. This servant is our Lord Jesus. Nothing was going to stand in his way. He was going to Jerusalem. He wasn't going to let anything get between him and his cross where he would purchase salvation for his people. So on he goes. Eager. You can say he's eager to get there. Eager to do the work that he had come into the world to do. And as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He was eager to do this work of redemption. He was eager to accomplish his cross work on behalf of the people of God. Now I want to be clear, our Lord did not look forward to the pain and death that awaited him. Far from it. Rather, he looked forward to what he was purchasing with his blood. That was the joy set before him. What he was purchasing, a people for God's own possession. He was purchasing a church. He was purchasing his own bride. A people who would be presented spotless before God, robed in righteousness, perfected in every way through Jesus he longed to do the work of redemption so that, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 11, about the servant of the Lord, he longed to do the work of redemption so that out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. He longed to make many to be accounted righteous because he would bear their iniquities. He longed to see the fruit of his labor, which is the salvation of sinners. Jesus marched on toward Jerusalem, knowing that suffering and death awaited him, and he walked with purpose because his heart beat with love. Love for God because he loved to do the will of his Father, and love for his people. He was eager to save us. Christian, know this. He was eager to save you. As an individual here, you as an individual, Christian, we do not believe in a generic general atonement. We believe in a particular redemption. Christian, he was eager to save you. He had your name on his mind as he marches to Jerusalem. Not some unnamed, unnumbered mass of people, but you specifically. Every one of us who have ever called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was on his mind as he goes toward Jerusalem. I hope you can see that. I hope you see that Jesus loves you so much that he disregarded the pain and suffering of the cross and embraced it willingly. I hope you see that nobody forced him to go to Jerusalem. He led the way. No one forced him to a cross. He went willingly. And I hope you see that he did it for you. Nothing could keep him from dying for you. So great is his love 
for his people. This is our Jesus. Lay claim on him. This is our Jesus who loves us. But Mark goes on to tell us in verse 32 that the, the fact that Jesus was leading the group was not lost on his disciples, was it? And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. I, I think there's two groups being mentioned here. The, the they in our text seems to have an immediate reference to the twelve. And those who followed seems to be a group who followed behind the twelve. Remember, there was a wider group of disciples that followed Jesus. It was the twelve and then a bigger group that followed along. And some in the bigger group would come and go and it would be bigger and smaller. But again, there's two groups here. But the text says the twelve were amazed. And the only thing in the text for them to be amazed at was the fact that Jesus was walking on ahead of them. You can't connect their amazement to what he said in the passage about the rich young ruler because that has already happened. We're in a different setting now. It's a different context. The only thing for them to be amazed at is that Jesus is leading them to Jerusalem. They were amazed at his resolve to get there. Again, they, they knew what he had said about his impending death and resurrection. He had said it twice now and alluded to it briefly another time. And, and we need to keep in mind, they didn't completely understand what he was saying. R remember, they didn't have a place in their theology for a Messiah who dies and is raised from the dead. But they knew that whether Jesus was being metaphorical or literal about death and resurrection, they knew Jesus said he was going to be killed. And that's not good. Whether literally or in a metaphor, to be killed is not good. And so they were amazed that he's leading the group walking on ahead of them toward Jerusalem where the very people he said were going to reject him and lead to his crucifixion lived. The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. They were centralized in Jerusalem. Right? That's religious elite headquarters is Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus is walking them right into, right into the den of where the people live that Jesus had said would reject him and lead to his death. The disciples were shocked at this. And the text says that the group that followed behind them were afraid. And I think that, again, it, it's just common knowledge that the religious rulers hated Jesus, that they're in Jerusalem, and the outer group of disciples are sitting here going, Jesus is leading us to Jerusalem, and everyone knows that the religious elite want to kill Jesus, and since we're following him, maybe we're going to die too. They know that things don't look well for Jesus whenever, they get to, whenever he gets to Jerusalem, and things probably don't look well for them, don't look good for them either. So they're afraid. They know suffering awaits everybody at Jerusalem, but especially Jesus. But I want to focus on, real quick, I want to focus on the fact that the twelve were amazed. They were amazed because they knew at least a little bit of what was waiting for Jesus in Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, would we not shuffle our feet toward the gallows? You don't see dead men power walking to the electric chair, do you? We would shuffle our feet to the gallows. If you, if you knew that death awaited you in Wheelersburg and you had to walk there from this church building, would you not drag your feet? Most of us would choose not to go there at all. Most of us wouldn't. We would go anywhere but there, but not Jesus. Again, it is truly amazing that he was eager to go to Jerusalem. And listen, I don't have anything profound to say about this. I just want to simply tell you to behold your Jesus here. I know I said it earlier. I want to say it again. Behold your God in this text. 
Our Jesus is not like the others. He is not like the gods of this world's religions. All other false gods, all false gods say, you come to me. Jesus says, I come to you. I'll give my life for you, and I'll do it willingly. Jesus is different. He willingly lays down his life for his people. There's no one like him. And he did this for sinners, for people who have offended him, because he loves us. Christian, behold your Jesus and be amazed at him. Back to our text. Uh, apparently, though, at some point during the trip to Jerusalem, Jesus slowed up enough to speak with the twelve. At the end of verse 32, we'll read that through the end. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus takes the twelve aside and tells them for the third time what's going to happen to him. But this time, he lets them know it's going to happen soon, doesn't he? He says, we're going to Jerusalem. It's going to happen when we get there. Jesus' hour had finally come. And all these things were to happen to him shortly. The plan of God to save sinners was quickly coming to pass. And now we get into his prediction about his death. And what I want to do is I want to go through the words of Jesus phrase by phrase or even word by word. There, there's, it's eight pieces in this prediction that we're going to look at. And, and I want to try to wring all that I can from these words so that we can see something of the depth of Christ's work for us. First, Jesus begins this prophecy by referring to himself as the Son of Man. Now, this is Jesus' favorite way to speak about himself. Where he says the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, or going to be delivered over. This, Jesus is the only one in the New Testament who uses this title, Son of Man. Now, some interpreters think uh, that when Jesus uses this title, that he is only referring to the fact that he is truly human. Right? Son of Man, he is a man. Right? And there's some merit to that. Obviously, that's true. And the phrase, Son of Man, is indeed used in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament to refer to Ezekiel. He's called Son of Man, right? Just, you're, you're a human and I'm talking to you is what the Lord's saying to Ezekiel. So again, there's some merit that Jesus is designating himself as truly human. But I can't help but to think, when I see that phrase, Son of Man, I can't help but to think of the glorious person of Daniel chapter 7 when I read that phrase. And it's in Daniel 7 that we read this. And I saw in the night visions, Daniel saying, I had a vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, this is the son of man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The son of man is that glorious figure who is truly human but who is also given the world. He's given an eternal kingdom and dominion 
and the, the service of all people. That, that word means worship. That he would be worshipped by all peoples, nations, and languages. This tells me that this Son of Man, who is the Lord Jesus, is nothing less than God. This Son of Man is the one especially loved by the Father, the one to whom the Father is pleased to give all things. But before the Son of Man will enter into his glorious reign and triumph over the world, he must first suffer all the things mentioned in our text. Before there is glory, there will be pain and death. Before there is his exaltation, he will suffer humiliation. But what I can't get around when I consider all of this is that the Son of Man, being God, being the one whom the Father loves especially, the Son of Man must allow these things to happen to him. If Jesus is the Son of Man of Daniel 7, and I grant that I give you Daniel 7 as a picture of his exaltation, but if Jesus is this Son of Man, loved this way by the Father, then these things aren't happening to him beyond his control. Rather, the Son of Man must allow these things to happen to him. Brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus, the Son of Man, is going to allow all of the suffering and humiliation in this text. He's going to allow it all to happen to him. Think about that. He will allow it. They will not overpower him. He will allow it. As he said earlier in his earthly ministry in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. He's saying no one ultimately is going to kill me. I'm going to give my life. He says, no one takes it from me, I lay it down. They could not take it from him if he did not first lay it down. Or again, as Jesus said to the apostle Peter on the night of his betrayal and arrest, as Jesus is being arrested and Peter is coming to his aid to fight for him, to keep him from being arrested, Jesus says this to Peter, Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, let it happen. If I didn't want it to happen, I could ask my father and he would send 12,000 angels down here to stop it from happening. And just so you know, in the Old Testament, one angel can kill tens of thousands of people in the course of a few hours. We have record of that happening a couple of times. Jesus said, I can get 12,000 of them down here if I just ask. But if I do that, how are the scriptures going to be fulfilled? If I do that, how are sinners going to be saved? Jesus is saying, I allow these things to happen to me. The Son of Man must permit these things to happen. And he's going to allow it all because it is the will of God that he saves sinners. And Jesus had come to do the will of God and save us. So these things were no accident. Jesus willed them to happen so that he might save us. Second, in our prophecy, Jesus says, And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. He'll be delivered over to them. Now that word delivered is interesting. It's broad enough, and in some translations reflect this, it's broad enough to refer to the betrayal 
of Judas Iscariot, where Judas, that son of perdition, sold our Lord out for 30 pieces of silver. Could mean that. But that phrase, delivered over, is interesting because we're not told who does the delivering then. Right? It's not that Judas will deliver him over. It's just open-ended. He will be delivered over. And often, whenever delivering up or delivering over is mentioned in Scripture with no particular person said to be doing it, it is God who is implied as, as doing it. Now, there are a ton of examples I can show you from the New Testament and even one from the, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Isaiah 53 where this language is used. But let me, for the sake of time, just give you one. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Peter says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter says, This Jesus, delivered up, delivered over, by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God, ultimately. God ultimately delivered Jesus over to the chief priests and scribes who would condemn him. It was the predetermined plan of God that all of this would take place. Now listen, Judas was the human agent, no doubt, and he is currently suffering for his sins. But it was God who was behind all of it, accomplishing his good plan of redemption. Christian, I want you to see the love of the Father for you in the words of our Lord here, that he would give his only son, his only begotten son, that is the unique one, the one who is in the bosom of the Father, who, as John says in, in John chapter 1, is face to face with the Father, as Paul calls him, the beloved, as John calls him in 1 John, the righteous advocate. This Jesus, God the Father gave for you. We do not understand the love of God for us. He loves us. Oh, Christian, if you suffer now, whatever you may be dealing with, I want you to know that the Father loves you. He delivered his son up to death for sinners, for us. This was the plan of God, and it always was. Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus is the one who brings the salvation, as Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1, whom God the Father had promised before the ages began. It's Jesus that Isaiah prophesied 800, seven or 800 years before he came to earth. This has always been the plan of God. Jesus suffering and dying and rising from the dead has always been the plan. And our God was going to ensure that it happened because he loves us. Jesus would be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, delivered by God for our sakes. Our third phrase, and they will condemn him to death. The chief priests and the scribes will condemn Jesus to death. And condemn here, this word means that there's going to be a trial of some kind. That's how you're condemned, through trial. Our Lord is prophesying his own trials the night before he's executed, where he will be judged. And scripture shows us, if you read those accounts in the Gospels, these were mock trials. They were nonsense. 
There's no justice in them. They were a violation of God's law, pretending to be keeping God's law, with lying witnesses and contradictory witnesses. But nevertheless, Jesus was going to be condemned by these self-righteous, hypocritical religious rulers who hated him. But again, I want you to think about this. Our Lord is telling us of his great humility here. The Son of God, the Son of Man, the King, the Creator, the one who holds all things together, is going to allow these vile and wicked religious hypocrites, these chief sinners rather than chief priests, he's going to allow them to judge him. The judge of all mankind. You remember John 5? The Father judges no one, but he's given all judgment to the Son. Jesus says, I have all the authority to judge all men. The one to whom all judgment has been given will allow himself to be falsely accused and unrighteously condemned to death in the courts of these sinners who claim to act on God's behalf. And he will sit trial and allow them to condemn him to death. The humility of our Lord Jesus knows no bounds. That he, God incarnate, would sit under the judgment and courts of sinners. The very men he created, the ones whom he knows everything about. The ones whose existence he is permitting to continue during the trial. That he would allow them to condemn him to death is absolutely astounding. He'll be blasphemed. He'll be accused of all manner of sins that he hates with a perfect hatred. And he will sit there silently and allow the trial to continue. The love Jesus must have for us is incomprehensible. What a Savior. And after condemning Jesus to death, our fourth thing, the religious rulers of the Jews will deliver him over to the Gentiles. This is the first time that Jesus mentions that the Gentiles are going to be involved. They're going to be de- he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. That's an important thing for us to consider. Jesus is here referring to the Romans. Right? They will be, or rather, he will be delivered over to the Romans for crucifixion. Now, maybe you're asking why. You see, the Jews didn't have the authority to carry out an execution. Right? They were occupied. They were a country occupied by Rome. So they would have to appeal to the Romans, who were Gentiles, obviously, to have someone executed. And so, since they desired, the chief priests and scribes, since they desire to have Jesus killed, they're going to condemn him in their false religious courts and then hand him over for execution by the Romans. But think about the implication of what Jesus is saying here in a biblical sense. This, this blew my mind as I came across this in my studies. Jesus is saying to be handed over to the Gentiles, he's going to be cast outside of the camp. He's going to be cast out of the Jewish camp. You see, whenever someone was executed in Israel, they were taken outside of the camp, away from where the people of God were, and they were executed there. They were taken outside of the camp. Jesus is saying here that he will be taken out of the camp and given over to the godless Gentiles. He will be completely forsaken by the Jews. Now, yes, there were some Jewish believers, but as a whole, Israel will reject him. And he will be sent outside of the camp. 
almost like the goats that would be driven away to expiate the sins of the people in Israel. You can read about that in the book of Leviticus, driven outside of the camp. And listen, the Gentiles will reject him as well. They won't recognize him as the son of God either, will they? They will kill him. Truly, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with much grief. He was rejected by the world. That is, by both Jew and Gentile. But let's think a little bit further, and this is amazing. In biblical history, I'm thinking of the Old Testament here. Whenever a Jew, or for a Jew to be handed over to and punished by the Gentiles was really to be punished by God. What do I mean? I mean this is what we see time and again on a national scale for Israel in the Old Testament. When Israel sinned, God would bring in the Gentiles to punish them, wouldn't he? You remember the book of Judges? The people rebel against God's law. God sends the Philistines or some other Gentile group. They ransack the Israelites. The Israelites repent, cry out for help. God sends them a judge. The Gentiles are kicked out of the land. Rinse and repeat. That's the whole book of Judges. God's constantly bringing the Gentiles in to judge Israel. Listen to First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Whenever a godless king turns away from the Lord, God says, you will have wars. And he sends the Gentiles in to plague the Israelites and attack them and punish them. Or, at its high point, the Babylonian exile, where the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all manner of Gentiles come in and wreck Israel and carry them off into exile for a time. This is God's judgment for a Jew to be handed over to the Gentiles as God punishing them. So then, in light of that, Jesus is saying here that just as Israel in the Old Testament was handed over to the Gentiles to be punished for their sins. So now he, the true and perfect Israelite, will be handed over to the Gentiles to suffer and bear God's wrath. To be punished by God on their behalf. Our Lord was cast out by the world, by both Jew and Gentile, so that he might be Savior of the world to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Fifthly, when, then Jesus goes on to be very specific about his sufferings, doesn't he? And listen, before we go into them, I want to say that Jesus didn't waste his breath here. Right? And the Holy Spirit did not have Mark waste ink. These are recorded. These specifics are set down line by line, instance by instance, so that we would meditate upon the sufferings and humiliation of our Lord Jesus in his work of redemption. They're here for a reason. We're to think on them. Verse 34, and they will mock him. Let me just read Mark 15, verse 16 through 20. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, the whole battalion of soldiers. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. They will mock him. 
They call the entire battalion out, put him in a purple robe, the collar of, the collar of royalty, twist together a crown of thorns and ram it down on his head to mock his claims to kingship. And they salute him. They give him the Roman salute and say, Hail the king of the Jews. They're mocking him. And they, they what's it say? They knelt down in homage to him. This is false homage. This is false praise. They get down on their knees and say, You are the king. And then they spit on him. They mock him. And then they lead him out to crucify him. And they made a joke of his glorious majesty. And then led him away to die. He'll be mocked. Our next phrase, and spit upon him. They will spit upon him. As we just read in that text from Mark 15, they spat upon him. This is one of the greatest signs of disrespect you can possibly give to a human being. Have you ever had anyone spit in your face before? Very few of us have actually ever had that happen to us. So disgraceful and so disrespectful of a sign that is to someone. And yet they will spit on him. And they do this to the Son of God. These wicked men will spit upon his holy face. They will esteem him as less than nothing. They will consider him less than a man. And they will flog him. The word flog in our translation, I don't like it. It doesn't really capture the horror of what Jesus says here. I prefer... Uh, the King James here, actually, because it's stronger and a better word, I think. They will scourge him. They will scourge him. That is, they'll beat him. Mercilessly beat him. They'll whip him with leather whips. That's what Roman scourging is. If you were condemned to be executed, it was Roman law that first you must be beaten. With leather whips, but not just leather straps. That would be too... Uh, easy for the cruel Romans. The Romans were fond of fastening pieces of sharpened bone, metal, and glass to the cords of the whip. And then the whip would tear flesh from bone with each strike. And usually they would whip you in pairs so that no one got too tired. So that every beating would be awful. They were masters of their craft of torture. Our Lord would be absolutely torn to shreds, is what he's saying here. His back would be shredded open to the point where you could see the muscle and maybe even the beginnings of some of his organs. Many men died during scourging that preceded crucifixion. It was a, it was a severe thing, but Jesus did not die. He would be beaten nearly to death by the Romans and their cruel whips. He would be given stripes upon stripes so that by his stripes we would be healed. As Isaiah said in Isaiah 52, his appearance was marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That is to say, his appearance would be destroyed beyond that of any man, beaten to the point. What Isaiah says here means he's going to be beaten to the point where he no longer resembles a human being, but is just a mass of torn flesh and blood. They will scourge him. And they will kill him. Faith, they will kill him. He would be crucified at the hands of the Romans. Nails would be driven into his hands and feet. 
he would be stripped naked and nailed to a cross of wood. And he would be lifted up on that cross. But we tend to romanticize this. He wouldn't be lifted up high into the air as most of us think or the foolish depictions would depict. He would most likely be lifted six to seven feet off the ground total, nearly eye level, across a seven feet tall, some of them seven or eight feet tall. And people would be permitted to go near to him to increase his humiliation, that they might continue to spit upon him. And as the New Testament tells us, wag their heads at him and deride him and mock him to his face as he's just outside of the city. And on that cross, our Lord would begin to suffocate. He would have to push himself up the cross with all of his strength, raking his back that has been laid open on this cross just to get up and get a small breath and then slump back down into strangulation. This is agony. This is excruciating pain. And some of you know this, excruciating, the root word is crucifix. That's where we get the word from. This is so awful. This is the, the agony, the, the likes of which makes death a welcome friend to the one dying. And there, hanging between heaven and earth, the Son of Man lifted up, he would die. The author of life would give up his spirit and die on the cross. Let's go further for a moment and see the apostolic explanation of what happened in the suffering and death of Christ. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 25a. The Apostle Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The Apostle Paul tells us that our Lord Jesus made propitiation by His blood in His cross. Don't tune out. I know you've heard this a million times. Hear it again. To propitiate means to satisfy wrath. Here, it refers to making satisfaction to God. Satisfying the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. That's what Jesus did in His cross. Our Lord suffered God's wrath that stood against us because of our sins. And in doing so, He took the wrath away. God now, hear me please, because of the cross of Christ, God now has no more wrath for the one who has received Jesus by faith because Jesus has taken it all and made propitiation. It's satisfied. It's done. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Peter writes, He himself, Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Here the Apostle Peter tells us that Jesus took our sins upon himself at the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took our sins away from us. If he bore them, then they're not on us anymore. They're taken from us. And in his wounds on the cross, he healed us. He cleansed us of our sin. Hebrews 9.12, the author of Hebrews writes, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. 
thus securing an eternal redemption. By his own blood, Jesus secured an eternal redemption for us. That means by his blood, he bought us back from our sins. We were in slavery, in bondage to sin, and he redeemed us from our sins and gave us an eternal redemption, never to be slaves again, never to be under the tyranny of sin and death, but to live forever. He purchased an eternal salvation for us in his cross. And lastly, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus freed us from the law's curse. That is the curse of death and hell that we had incurred because of our sin and disobedience to God. And Jesus freed us from it by becoming that curse. By being cursed by God on our behalf at the cross. With his death, he took away our sins. All those who would believe in him, he saved in his cross. What a glorious thing that he did for us. But Christian, real quick, do you see, looking at this text and comparing what the New Testament, what the apostles said about the cross of Christ, do you see here that our Lord suffered everything that should have happened to you and me? We should have been condemned. We should have been condemned by God because of our sin and disobedience. We should have been mocked and spit upon by God. We should have been ridiculed by him for our arrogance to think that we would live apart from him. We should have been scourged and given eternal death by God for our sins. But all that should have happened to us happened to him instead. He took our condemnation and he gave us life. Christian, consider the price of your salvation. In the wounds of Christ, see the wretchedness of sin. In the death of Christ, see the penalty for sin. And see that all of this was done for you. What a Savior. But he wouldn't just die, would he? We now come to the end of, our words, of the words of our Lord here. He wouldn't just die. And after three days, he will rise. What a happy note for us to end on. He will suffer, and he will be treated shamefully, and he will be killed, but that is not the end. It's not the end. As Charles Spurgeon said, you may think as much as you will of Calvary, and you should, and let your tears flow like rivers, but you must ultimately wipe those tears away, for Christ is not in the grave. He rose from the dead on the third day. Amen. Our Lord is not dead. He is alive and well. On the third day, he would rise. And he would rise in vindication. All of his claims to deity, kingship, sinlessness, righteousness, everything he ever said would be proven to be true because God set his seal of approval on Christ at his resurrection. He would rise as our proof and surety, proving that he didn't die for his own sins because he had none, but rather that he died to save sinners like us. He would rise again in glory, never to die again, never to be humiliated again, never to suffer again. He would rise in glory, and he would rise as King of kings and Lord of lords, having all authority in heaven and on earth so that he might go forth in spiritual warfare to conquer this earth 
and make it his. He would rise. He is alive. He came to life that he might give life to all who trust in him. He suffered for our sins and died and was raised on the third day. In closing, brothers and sisters, what are we to do in light of this text? Just see him. Just see Jesus here. There's no command in this text. See him. See him here. See his love for you. See his determination to save you. See his humility to suffer and die for you. See his work of redemption for you. See his resurrection and his glory. Just see him. Just get a look at him. And be amazed by him. That he loves you like this. See him. And fix your eyes firmly upon our Lord who loved us and gave his life to save us. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for this text that just brings us back to the fundamentals of the faith that Jesus lived, died, and was raised for us. And as we meditate, Lord, upon your sufferings, Lord Jesus, we're brought to tears because we see what a great cost our salvation was. But yet, God, because we know you were raised from the dead. And we know that your death brought us life. We cannot help but to, through tears, smile and say, Hallelujah, what a Savior that we have. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.